the military was a good time for me because graduating and not doing well at the A levels and honestly being on autopilot mode in, in, in my grief meant that I was like playing computer games and being very unmotivated and crying and grieving was a function of avoidance and self-distancing. Different behaviors helped me cope. I think the army was great because at a very deep level, the military consumes your entire life with its routines. There's no space for rumination because you're forced to exercise a lot every day and you're asked not to think for yourself. You spend a lot of time out in the sun and being surrounded by people all the time. So actually, it's a pretty good uh, enforced mandatory uh, recovery routine if you think about it. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 97 of the So This Is My Wire podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. But before we start, I would love if you could leave a review for this podcast whether on social media or on Apple Podcasts to let others know what you think of it. Every review does help this podcast to grow and you have my eternal gratitude. Now let's get to today's guest, Jeremy Oh. Jeremy Oh is the Chief of Staff and Head of Strategic Projects at Monks Hill Ventures in Singapore and also the host of the Brave Southeast Asia Tech Podcast, which features tech trailblazers in Southeast Asia. In this episode... We dive deep into why Jeremy's earliest ambition was to be a vaccine researcher and how they helped him get into consulting later. How the tragedy of losing his first love when he was 16 years of age transformed his life and how the army saved him from his pain. We also talked about his time starting at Berkeley and becoming a co-founder and what his experience was like doing his MBA at Harvard University before finally deciding to come back to Singapore and his journey in becoming a VC amongst you and a podcaster. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I read this story you shared once of how you had an argument with a friend whose life goal was to help his friends and family to be happy. And then you said, no, you want to maximize the number of people around the world to achieve the greatest possible happiness, which is on a totally different scale. <laughs> yeah, so definitely was I think, theoretical about my impact uh, as a person, as a teenager. I think when you grow up reading a lot of science fiction, you think about what impact you want to leave on the world. You spend time quantifying it and also comparing yourself versus other people. So I think as it strive to be... Uh, you can call it ambitious, but also larger. And I think for me, the debate at that point was whether you want to help one person, like your family, versus helping a lot more people. And I think that's where the contrast in our friendship. I think we reunited like years down the road. We both reflected that the other side was more correct in another way. I think he acknowledged and felt that as a result you know, of that, initial goal been able to be much more targeted much more focused and as a result help a lot more people than he had i also reflected at the end of the day you can't save the world and you can't help millions of people and that at some level helping the people around you is really the crux of it so i think that was a really good learning that i had whether it's helping the world or helping a more targeted group i realized that a common theme throughout your life since you were young was that you were always thinking of how can I do good? And that got me curious. Was there something in your life growing up that made you think in this way? It seems like it's such an integral part of who you are. 
doing good is not really how I would define it. I actually used that phrase in a different way earlier, right? Which is about helping people. I think there are many ways to do good in this world, like research, making money, building stuff. I always defined it more as helping people and supporting them. There's a very human-centric view of the world that I prefer to default to. I love reading science fiction where we're talking about how people react in different situations, about what is reviewed by their nature or what is reviewed in a situation and circumstances that they're facing. It's just amazing what we individual humans have done collectively by helping each other as well as individually. It's quite exciting to see that huge trajectory to where we are today and where we could be in the future. That core of it is no matter how big the technology is, no matter how big the trend is, no matter how vast the company feels like, at the end of the day, it's all people. That's my frame of the world rather than the frame of the world. So that's how I think about it. Was there something that happened early in the part of your life that caused you to think in that way? I think the two parts of my life, right? The first part of my life has always been growing up, I wanted to be a medical researcher, right? There's like a vaccine researcher, right? Well, a vaccine that, researcher but... as well. Before <laughs> the really... matter was, I read, you know, Time and May of the Year, there was an, you know, Asian American who had got on to the AIDS vaccine cocktail in terms of antivirals that helped make living with AIDS and HIV night and day different. And that was a huge inspiration for me as a kid because so many lives were transformed from an effectively a death sentence to something that is survivable to even having a thriving life. In retrospect, also, I think it was nice to see some representation as well for an Asian person to be featured on the cover of Time. That was why I said I wanted to be a vaccine scientist growing up. Yet, after some exposure to what research actually is and realizing that you're stuck in the lab with a very strong hypothesis testing, I realized that that wasn't really the right environment for myself to be passionate about. The second aspect about it was, I think, growing up, these wonderful stories are more like legends and myth <laughs> and recreations of the actual thing. We get to hear these stories about how they overcome various challenges, how they manage to get themselves to go to school and things like that. You can see the problem-solving aspect of it and then the storytelling aspects of hearing my parents' story, adversity and everything. And I, I think that has made me really be both at one level problem-centric, quantitative and logical about the problems that uh, humans face, as well as being very curious about the stories that humans have in terms of how they address the problem and how they overcame that challenge later. When you were in junior college, 16, you had a really difficult period. I wonder if you could share a little bit about that and basically how you picked yourself up from that. Yeah, the core of it was that during junior college, I was deeply in love with this classmate of mine. She was just an amazing human being. She wanted to in the medical field and be a pharmacist or even a doctor. Long story short, she contracted an unknown disease quite suddenly in the course of two weeks, which was a huge shock to myself, a huge blow to her family and her friends as well. When I think about that, I almost feel like there are three versions of Jeremy that have gone through this. The first version of Jeremy was this someone who was going through a lot of grief of having a loved one passed away with such an unexplained disease that we never knew the reason why. And I think very focused on being grief, yet also 
very reluctant to be vulnerable and very focused on being both protective, man up to grief, the shock, the tears. The second, Jeremy has really been someone who picked himself out from that grief. As a result, I did very poorly in junior college and didn't have university offers. And so having to pick when I was an army to eventually decide that I did want to study again and to apply for universities. And at one level, really, I think from the outside, really look as if he was succeeding, going to a good, decent university and then do the professional career and figure out how to be part of social impact consulting as a tribute to her. I think that second Jeremy was also very shielded for, I'd say, 10 years. I hardly talk about that story for everybody. People ask me about, why am I motivated to do this or why does it matter? You know, the truth was, I was compartmentalized and I saw that as a virtue, you kind of like, freeze the top layer of the lake and the lake is very deep. When you're skating on top, then you don't know how deep the lake is. And I think the third Jeremy has been slowly coming to terms with that through the process of using that to reflect on time, the progression of it, the articulation about the pain and being able to share it and seeing it as something that happened. I can't control what happened and I can't change what happened, but I can reflect on what I learned from it. I can reintegrate what that means moving forward to me in terms of my daily actions. And I myself now have a daughter and a second daughter on the way. One thing I realized while I was holding my daughter was my grief was a shared collective grief. I love my daughter so much now. Was also the same way that her mother and her father had grief for her. And obviously during that time, my grief was very solitary and I was helping them, but it was almost compartmentalized. And I also had no idea because I loved her, a boyfriend and a girlfriend, right? But not understanding what it means to love as a parent. Having a daughter of my own has realized the different dimension of grief that was there. When you're middle-aged, mortality is inevitable. That's just part of living, right? It's interesting to see how the same experience can be reflected and refracted through three different prisms. The Jeremy of that time going through that pain, the Jeremy that was striving and trying to rebuild yet a shield. Third is someone that's trying to integrate all of it together. And I think there's some self-awareness that there may be a fourth or fifth or sixth Jeremy, right, down the road. The crazy part of being human is that even though the same thing happened once, you can have multiple experiences through it. At the end of the day, at one level, I'm still the same Jeremy. I would trade anything for myself to be away, gone, and for her to be around, alive, because she was this amazing human being who wanted to help so many people in her own way. That sense of mortality is also, I think, a big driver about how I say to myself, what matters versus what doesn't matter. Like all this stuff doesn't matter because no one's going to remember in 1,000 years. Your experience of it matters, but the stuff doesn't matter. That's uh, something I do think about quite a bit. But I imagine when you went to the army, you were still Jeremy one. You were dealing with all that, feeling all that. Wow, being in the really intense environment, that's the army. And while you were at the army, you said that you were studying for Berkeley, but that seems to be putting it mildly because you were studying by torchlight. You were cutting up your set books and putting it in zip blocks. What was that whole experience like? What was driving you to do so much? The military was a good time for me because graduating and not doing well at the A-levels. And honestly, being on autopilot mode in, in my grief meant that I was like playing computer games and 
being very unmotivated and crying and grieving was a function of avoidance and self-distancing. Different behaviors helped me cope. I think the army was great because at a very deep level, the military consumes your entire life with its routines. There's no space for rumination because you're forced to exercise a lot every day and you're asked not to think for yourself. You spend a lot of time out in the sun and being surrounded by people all the time. So actually, it's a pretty good uh, enforced mandatory recovery routine if you think about it. I really enjoyed all those things. I was actually writing in my diary from time to time and I've got a chance to look at it a few times since then. The best thing was it gave me time and space away from everything else. You know, the truth is, you know, if I had gone to university or somewhere else, I probably would have slowly reintegrated myself over time. The military was a special time. Once I had that integration about, okay, she passed away. I'm still around. I can't treat my life or hers. With that understanding, it became much more like, let's study the SAT because it's an alternate scoring system and it's a little easier to study for, right? Okay, let's buy the books. Let's study during the breaks. If I'm going out to the jungle for exercises and the exam is coming up, maybe I have to cut it up and put it in Ziploc bags. That was just uh, a tough time in some ways because not everybody was supportive about that. But the good thing again was I was in the military surrounded by strangers. I would say that being surrounded by a cohort of other 16 and 17 year old you know, male teenagers, it's not necessarily a place for much introspection or peer understanding. I think it eventually worked out. I was able to do well in SATs, put together my application. The reason why I also went to UC Berkeley as well was that it was one of the few schools that didn't require a testimonial from a junior college teacher. Because, I mean, I wasn't a great student, right? The teacher was very kind to still write a decent testimonial, but it wasn't glowing because I was checked out and skipping school and out, right? I'm glad I got accepted. I still remember being excited to finally go to university and exploring new opportunities, hoping to bury everything that happened in Singapore when I moved to California, which I did in, you know, Jeremy V 2.0 slash dodging, you know, V 1.0, I guess. So when you were in Berkeley, you said that you ended up joining the Berkeley group, which changed your life, which is a very strong statement to make. And I wonder why you would say that. Well, before I went to UC Berkeley, I had an opportunity to meet up with an alumnus. I had been volunteering at various nonprofits because I had received the benefit of some therapy and counseling services from my time while grieving girlfriend. I'd been helping out while I was in the military. Would you giving kids like O levels during the weekend? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, good news is that if you totally flunk your A-levels, but you still can teach O-level math, honestly, especially if they historically weren't doing well, right? So yeah. you still can get them part of the way there. Because honestly, helping them with math, really looking more for like companionship and someone who's more like friendly, if that makes sense. You're not looking to get them to an A, right? <laughs> like when you're donating math tuition classes, they're very much like... Just know, don't fail. <laughs> yeah, don't fail, right? So just helping them pass is really good. Yeah, I was bad at school and A-levels, but... Turns out if you go down a couple of levels and lower the threshold, it turns out that you have some value to add. And so I was catching up this alumnus and I think uh, she found out and we're talking about it that I wanted to, you know, help out and volunteer. At that time, I had also given up uh, on being a, a medical researcher and a vaccine researcher because after seeing my girlfriend pass away in a hospital and everything, I was just also kind of turned off by the whole medical field, like not wanting to be in the environment. So I decided that I wanted to take my second best subject, which was economics. And study there at UC Berkeley. 
So she found out that I wanted to do economics and I wanted to volunteer. She recommended that I check out a group called the Berkeley Group, which I later find out was a very selective social impact consulting group. They problem solve for nonprofits on a pro bono basis. They'll select the top three to five percent of the people who applied. And so I arrived on campus as a freshman thinking that would be something I would explore. I remember applying and getting selected for an interview after the resume screen. I went for the interview and I remember they asked me, hey, Jeremy, imagine you're an organization and you're given 100,000 doses of vaccine. How would you distribute it across the city? How do you answer that question? Because I was very fascinated to hear that. I wonder how Jeremy answered that. Well, as someone who was already a vaccine nerd at that time, I asked lots of follow-up questions, right? Which is actually the tricky part. When you're doing a case study, you don't have all the information. You need to be thoughtful about the questions you're asking. I asked lots of questions about what does the vaccine do? Is there any differential impact across different populations? Are certain groups higher risk for side effects versus groups that have more efficacy for this vaccine? I asked if the vaccine needed to be installed in cold conditions with a cold chain. I asked about the cost. All those things that are very, very obvious to someone who's been reading about vaccines for a long time. For those who went uh, through the pandemic. Yeah, back in 2008, I asked all those questions and then I put together a rough plan of how to distribute the vaccine about equity and also the economics of the vaccine. And I got accepted. I remember the interviewer was like, wow, I have never seen anyone do an interview as good as Jeremy. I mean, I was introduced to the rest of the club and it was like, he was so good at problem solving and case studies and stuff. And I was like, I don't know what a case study is. <laughs> I still don't. I just know about vaccines, right? And funnily enough, the next project I did was on Vietnamese microfinance. I had to do a lot of retraining because suddenly everyone was like, wow, he was very good at case study that's supposedly generalizable, but turns out he's really good at vaccines. I was really lucky and fortunate that uh, the very hard interview question that they had just happened to be on the one topic that I was a big nerd about, right? And uh, that being said, being part of that group was amazing because everybody was happy to be there. Everybody was passionate about society, about solving. It was really a great tribe of people who really wanted to make a difference. That was a really fun time. All of us have gone to do some really interesting and amazing stuff. Some people have become doctors, economists, entrepreneurs, uh, and others have become social impact consultants. It was a strong vein of passion and community that I really admire for having come together. And how do you end up while still in Berkeley doing all this? You also found your first startup called Conjunct Consulting with Kojiachun. So how did that start? Conjunct Consulting was also a social impact consulting organization. I was at UC Berkeley and I received internship offer from Bain, which was my third choice. The first choice was Gates on vaccine strategy, which turns out they don't hire at that level, nor do they really hire internationals. And then the second choice was Bridgespan, which was also social consulting, but they don't hire again. Or, and they don't really hire junior people, to be honest. And the third was, uh, choice was Bain. It's rare to hear Bain being third place. I think Bain was a sister organization of Bridgespan, but for profit and for corporates. That was why I wanted to go there and train. What was interesting was coming back to Singapore and Southeast Asia, there was an equivalent organization of the Berkeley Group. And that sucked because you know, I was missing my tribe. So coming back, I discussing this with my old army buddy, Kwok Jia Chuan, and we decided, hey, let's do it. So we built an organization built to not only do good, but also be truly sustainable in terms of financial, human capital, in terms of vision. We ended up 
able to do it because at my day job, I was being a consultant, which was further deepening my skills in problem solving. I was replicating the culture at the Berkeley Group at UC Berkeley. And at another level, the things that I felt could be better or improved, I could rebuild from scratch. And I think that I learned a lot from that experience of building an organization that's not just doing good, but break even and profitable as a result of being able to scale that impact more and more, to be honest, because nobody had really done it at that point in time. Back in 2011, the term social entrepreneur was new even in the West and definitely new in Singapore and Southeast Asia. And people didn't even call themselves founders at the time as well. All of us were calling ourselves executive directors or presidents. You shared at the time, the biggest challenges was facing skepticism. And I wonder what kind of skepticism were you facing and what was it that kept you guys going and pushing through? Skepticism was something that we definitely felt all the time, ranging from, I don't think this is going to work, to, I don't think that nonprofits should get help at all, to, I don't think that a consulting approach makes sense, to, I don't think Southeast Asia or Singapore is ready for it. You also said once that they also said, I don't think people in Singapore care enough, which surprised me actually. Oh yeah, that was probably the most common actually, because one of the big assumptions that as we social enterprise was that we believed that there were people in business or affiliated business who were willing to work in that structured approach to help nonprofits and social enterprises in a consulting approach. The truth is, it was a big commitment for people to, to give back. Within Singapore, there is a strong skepticism about our society's uh, willingness to stretch. And yet there's also a very strong push to make that different and to give back. In Singapore and to some extent Asian society, a lot of the help that we're thinking about is focused around the family, helping your family, helping your extended family, and helping society. Helping society first is a little bit new and novel because I think it requires a certain level of societal substrates to ha happen. You can call it patriotism or nationalism. I think the awareness of causes and mass communication, the availability of free time to be able to commit and support a cause without feeling like you're jeopardizing the economics or security of your own family are actually substrate factors that are relatively recent for many societies. There's a lot more optimism today. There's a much deeper sense of a transnational, global, and even local causes that resonate with a lot of folks. I think that's very heartening to see all the social entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders, regulators, politicians, activists, and common people be able to kind of like pick that together and drive that forward. My observation is that it has hopefully dialed down over time as a point of skepticism. Given that you were facing all this skepticism, how do you even find the people who believe in the same cause as you? talk to a lot of people. <laughs> I think there are three parts to it. One is you just have to talk to a lot of people. By talking to more and more people, you create serendipity referrals and you get to meet people who share the same view. That's a big part of it because if you don't talk to anybody, nobody will believe, right? The second part is being okay with the odds uh, of it. The truth is most of us actually live in bubbles or communities where most of us agree with each other all the time. The tricky part is that when you're trying to build something new or something that changes the world in a significant way, it's unlikely it lines up with what your friend circle or your co-worker circle is. You know, I always remember a friend of mine and he was like, hey, Jeremy, you care about this, you care about that. 
why don't you support me on this geopolitical cause that he cared about? And I told him, well, the reason why I don't care about that geopolitical cause is because I don't fundamentally care and I can't care about it on top of all the things I care about. I feel sad about it. Yet, is it really my role to be able to contribute to it? That's a very awkward thing to say because everybody is like, okay, if that's sad, I want to tweet about it, right? The truth is, at some level, the focus of your time is really the crux of it. The third aspect is really about what if you're wrong? How do you make your idea better? I was lucky because I was taking an idea that had worked in America and I was in many ways actually very experienced. So I was uniquely positioned as an operator to build it from scratch and not only build it from scratch at one university, but across multiple universities to make it profitable and sustainable to find leadership to take over. The truth was a lot of other people who had the same idea, talking to lots of people and being comfortable with the odds. There were many other organizations that I observed that were just as compelling, just as willing to hustle and talk to everybody, but eventually failed and proved the skeptics right. Third point has allowed me to understand as an operator and founder, being able to talk to lots of people, hearing all the skepticism, being comfortable with skepticism, yet in your mind also being thoughtful and using that feedback to reassess your odds, right? To improve your idea, to improve your pitch, to improve your idea proposition, to learn from every person you talk to. It's a very hard mindset to have, yet it allows you to get better, right? And so in the perfect world, what happens is that you're talking to lots of people, you're not scared of rejection, and that allows you to keep talking to more and more people. The more people you talk to, the wiser, the more articulate you become. And in that perfect world, then your hit rate gets high over time. And then, you know, you build that tribe over time. And it's a very unique set of skills to have because it requires to be thick-skinned and shameless and a good communicator, yet also vulnerable and willing to learn and willing to execute. And I think that was something that I tremendously enjoyed being part of. I think that unique set of those three attributes are really, really hard to find. And frankly, a prerequisite to be a strong founder. And what was it like to then go into your 2 plus 2 MBA at Harvard? What was your personal mission statement? So it's a good question. What's interesting is that I also had opportunity to you know, kind of like reflect uh, a lot. You know, I had an opportunity to build various mission statements and vision boards over time. I think growing up as a teenager, I think the word honor was very strong as a core word because of growing up in a, you know, school that was concerned about chivalry and gentlemanliness and all those things. So I think the word honor really resonated with me as a teenager. And I think that as a working professional, I remember that the three values that I really cared about was really, I remember writing this down before my MBA was really about encapsulating dedication, integrity, and courage. And those were three values that I felt were really important. And one thing to use those values to really catalyze and mobilize change movements was something that I really uh, cared about when I was going. And the reason why I built this mission statement was because I had gotten some advice from graduates of the Harvard MBA program that being able to come in with a set of values and a set of focus areas that you want to explore was, I think, the best way to use your time while at Harvard. Because, you know, I think Harvard, the Harvard MBA program is a very special place, which is within the Harvard ecosystem which is within the Ivy League, MIT, and Northwestern, and Boston ecosystem, which is also part of the American ecosystem. And so there's a very unique set of opportunities that you have. And the truth is you only have two years of time 
to be part of it. And so the truth is you could do everything very superficially or you could do some things really well. I took that time to really be thoughtful about going into my Harvard program. And I remember I kind of like said that there three objectives I want to do, right? You know, I, I said, the first thing I wanted to do was, first of all, meet a new person every day. That was one. The second was really building my skills to be a great CEO and builder. And the third was drawing something that reflected my values. And if not, build something that did. So those were my three goals I had during my Harvard MBA program. I think the first one was great because it's pretty easy KPI. Because <laughs> instead of like trying to say, like, I want to meet 900 or 1,800, or it's just like, if you meet one person every day, I think it's a pretty achievable thing, right? Just go out, meet new people at the start. And then by year two, people start forming clicks and then you just have to be okay getting to know people at different <laughs> groups or coursework or clubs or societies or mixers. What I realized was that, you know, there's a bunch of like old friends I started to really like. And so I wanted to have that deeper conversation. So to me, it's like, if I had a deep conversation today, then I don't need to meet a new person, right? I think the second about building up my skill set, I think it was a reflection of feeling like I had understood what it meant to be a consultant and be a problem solver. And also knowing what it meant to be a social entrepreneur. Yet I also felt like there was a lot of stuff that I was really building on the fly. And so really wanting to learn from the management science, which I think people are confused by, but there's actually a real science to management and leadership that exists. This just happens to be behavioral economics slash leadership class pop psychology, right? And so this is weird mishmash of stuff that actually there's some truth to it about what it means to work with people at scale at the frontier. And I wanted to learn that knowledge. Thirdly, uh, I really wanted to do was, you know, be part of something that reflected my values. And I had the opportunity to really be part of so many different uh, societies. It was just interesting because healthcare is a fundamental good. And obviously, there's some very deep organizational structural challenges of running hospitals and clinics and telehealth networks. And being, you know, obviously looking at the social entrepreneurship, club profits and social enterprises and advocacy groups as a way of helping. And the last really technology club which was really about what we consider tech today, right? You know, startups and big tech and building the future. And it was just interesting for me to explore different iterations of all of that. You wrote a blog post with advice for people who want to apply to Harvard, links of how to prepare for it. And there was one thing that you said people should think about before going in. Think about what you should not learn at Harvard. And I wonder what your answer to that is. Just because I give advice doesn't mean that I follow my advice, right? <laughs> so... There's a cardinal rule of consultants, you know, in case you don't realize. Truth, entering Harvard, I wasn't as explicit about what not to learn. And I think that's why I gave that advice to other folks to be thinking about, you know, why are you choosing not to prioritize? Why are you choosing not to learn? You know, one aspect, for example, I realized was that, you know, as part of the healthcare club, the reason why it didn't really resonate for me at that point of time was that most of what the healthcare club in the Harvard MBA set was really exploring was really unique to the American healthcare system in terms of how the insurer network set up, how the billing is set up, how the hospitals work, etc. Obviously, there are some generalizable features about the system, yet it is well understood by everybody around the world and by Americans themselves that the American healthcare system is uniquely underperforming around the world versus how much they spend versus how much they get. And so one thing I realized was interested in learning about healthcare and hospitals and medical systems. And yet what I don't want to learn is about the American healthcare system that we either are trying to solve it on a structural level, which means probably 
going and learning how to go to Congress to lobby for change of the system, which was something I didn't want to learn, even though I read about it, I'm curious about it. I'm not an American citizen. So that's something I just didn't want to learn per se. And I also didn't want to learn as a result to build startups that were uniquely tailored to the American healthcare systems, right? Remedying the shortfalls. And the truth is there are many startups that honestly only work for America, right? In terms of pricing transparency or helping with insurer codes. Like those are things that just doesn't exist in other countries. And because if you're going to an emerging market where there's very little healthcare, then you got to learn a very different approach, right? You mentioned the healthcare club. Is that where you started really exploring mental health as an issue? Because you were doing all that, inter- doing hundreds of interviews that led you to starting your second startup, Cozy Kin. So what was interesting was that I had been interested in mental wellness for a long time. So all the way from 2013. I think part of it was just, again, reflections on my own grief and my own experience was range from positive to ambivalent about the value of counseling and therapy during that time. I was being quite thoughtful about exploring building up mental health care up actually. And long story short was the whole bunch of user testing and not to nerd out too much, but you know, I think you know, some aspects about mental wellness is really challenging to do on a commercial basis. To be fair, I think a lot of great founders since then have figured out different ways to approach it or make it more accessible. So it's amazing. The interesting part that I realized was, you know, one insight I've shared on my own podcast was that What's interesting is that for most problems, the worst problem is the more they want your product. And what that means is that if you are slightly hungry, then you're willing to pay five bucks for food. And if you're very hungry, then you're willing to pay a lot of money to get some food, right? What's interesting is that if you are mildly depressed, you don't think it's a problem. (laughs) And so you're not willing to pay a lot for healthcare. But if you're very depressed, then you can't even get out of bed (laughs) and access any healthcare at all. And so this interesting dynamic where for depression, the intensity of the problem is not correlated. At one level, you can say willingness to pay, but even the the readiness or openness to get help, which is, I think, the uniquely challenging feature about this one disease. And so what happens is that you have a bunch of people who are very depressed and are effectively hiding from you, right? If you're like trying to find people to give free therapy or medicine therapy, I mean, it's interesting where that category is as kind of like hidden from you, right? Because there's so much of the stigma, but it makes it uniquely difficult to figure it out. We ended up changing tech and saying, okay, you know, instead of trying to nip the problem about when they have very severe depression and caring for it, how do we prevent the emergence of mild or moderate depression? And one of the things that we realized was that there were certain clusters of depression. There were, you know, university students who were far away from home, isolated from family and going through, obviously, their own identity awareness issues. I think the second cluster was in first responders who are dealing with PTSD, like soldiers or firefighters or policemen. And the third category was grief, you know, people who are suffering the death of a loved one, a personal loss was a big chunk of it as well. And the last group that we saw was really about postpartum depression, like mothers who had gone through a tough time. And one of the things that we realized was that when we did that, zoom in on that category of mothers-to-be and recent mothers, the interesting challenges was really about the lack of childcare. We interviewed you know, 107 moms, pediatricians, doctors, husbands, 
And I think we really came to the understanding that, at least in America, there's a very unique challenge about the unavailability of childcare was compromising the ability for mothers to go back to work, the compromising their ability to have a steady paycheck for the family, compromising their ability to resume the identity that they had of being a working professional because they couldn't find childcare that they could trust to care for the most precious thing in their life. And so that was just an interesting experience for us to pivot in that sense from a mental health care startup approach to saying, okay, how do we prevent postpartum depression to, okay, let's just solve the childcare situation in a very deep level. And so I think it was just a fascinating experience to found it up, get funding for it, and eventually sell the company to the daycare chain was this bonkers, you know, chapter of my life as well. What's the solution now that you had identified the issue, which was childcare or lack of it? Childcare? You know, you know, more childcare, right? I mean, if you don't have childcare, the answer the solution is more childcare. I mean, it was just amazing because, you know, I remember, you know, when we were talking to the doctors and we were like, oh, you know, all these moms are depressed and sad because they can't go back to work and or they can't have a paycheck. And then, you know, doctors were like, oh, maybe you should give them therapy or counseling sessions from their perspective to help them come to grips that there's no childcare, right? You know? And if you think about it, it's actually very logical because it's fair if you're a doctor or a nurse and you're hearing this, that this is the problem and they, they understand the problem, they hear the problem. But from their perspective, because they're doctors, the only way they can solve the problem is giving them therapy or counseling to accept the fact that they can't go back to work and accept the fact that childcare is really bad in your area. And guess what? You should become a stay-at-home mom, right? Even though you didn't want to, or you're going to have to sacrifice a bunch of your living conditions in order to make it happen. So that was a really uh, tough set of conversations to have. And I think where it came down to was you had to figure out how to provide more childcare. Um, you build out a sharing economy approach where, you know, you managed to popularize the concept of like, you know, we call it then nanny shares, childcare pods, but a concept of sharing childcare in a distributed manner with your neighbor. So you and your neighbor partner up to share childcare or going to a local home daycare to act as a local pod instead of like, very large in pairs that are not systematically fully serving the needs of the population. And what was interesting was that there was a deep realization that at some level, you know, we were doing a commercial approach to solve the problem. And yet it was actually a public health or societal slash governmental decision, right? Because America is one of the few countries in the world that doesn't have maternity leave. And so there's this bonkers gap, I think, at the early stages for American childcare slash families where there is hardly any support for young children, which is a shame. I think it was always that deep sense to be like, you know, why are we solving this, right? You know, shouldn't government be solving this at minimum because of the right thing to do, you know? So that was just an interesting reflection over time. And I think it was also a big reason why I eventually moved back to Singapore, you know, after having sold a company and just working on the problem for so long. At some level, it was just like, well, what's the future for me, right? What am I really passionate about? And it was really more about Southeast Asia and the opportunity of millions of people, you know, so and so forth. Also on our level, it's just like affinity, right? Which is that I fundamentally resonated more with Southeast Asia and the future rather than working on some of these structural gaps that in America that felt like should have been resolved by government or community. So I think that's why I was quite excited to come back to Singapore. What was it like coming back to Singapore and how do you end up at Monks You know, coming back to Singapore was interesting because Singapore is a story about the world and Southeast Asia and Singapore itself. 
what's interesting is that being able to come back as a professional, having worked U.S. is that you have a fresh set of eyes on your own place. I think uh, part of it was coming back to Southeast Asia was exploring different opportunities, different roles, different companies, and also exploring whether to found a business again. You know, I was um, approached by the opportunity to join the VC world and see the other side of the table. And I think what was unique about Monk's Hill Ventures was the fact that everybody in the company is a former founder and operator. And it meant that I had already heard good things about the team, about the culture, the, the fact that they understood what it meant to work with founders because they were former founders. And on the other hand, also being curious about what the other side of the table looked like and understanding how the capital was distributed, how founders were selected for capital. And I think being part of that transition was interesting because being a founder, the truth is I really didn't like a lot of VC. And I had to go sit down and do some thinking with my executive coach and was the realization that I didn't want to be a VC. And if I was to be a VC, it would have to be on my terms in terms of norms, values, and approach. But yet, if you had asked me, are there people that you respect in the VC world? I've told you, yes. I would say, I respect Brad Feld because he's someone who's open and vulnerable and has been transparent about his own mental health issues and grief, but also been able to talk through and provide so much help. I admired Jason Calacanis, again, for being a podcast host and for being transparent about the information and sharing, for being authentic, and for being frank about A, B, and C, and therefore being a great source of knowledge and information. So there's so many different aspects that there were individual VCs that I respected, but I didn't like VCs. And so what I realized, if I'm going to enter this role, I'm going to step in with intentionality and say, I'm not going to be just like every other VC which I write down as EOVC. It's one of those notes. It's like, I'm not going to be EOVC, every other VC. I want to be doing it in a very human, humane, authentic way. I think it's a very high standard because I think the norms of VC, the incentive structure, and that the normal behaviors of your peers actually incentivizes you to be EOVC, right? You know, to act in that dynamic. And it's actually, honestly, it feels like swimming against the current. Try to carve out time for people who need the help. It's hard to be on time for meetings because you're back to back to every other meeting. It's hard to be thoughtful in your answers when you're time compressed. So I think I have a lot more respect for my role models slash heroes because, you know, I just have no idea how they do it. And the answer probably is they probably don't feel like they're doing it either. <laughs> yeah. They have a huge team behind them. Would you say that people like Jason Calacanis his podcast is a good reflection of what it's like being a startup founder and, you know, working in VC. Well, he's a good reflection of how VC thinks because he is both an angel who is working as a VC. So he understands the way of work. He's plugged into the, Amer the network in America. And so he represents a very strong community and affinity set of knowledge that is pretty non-common from my perspective. Yet he also doesn't represent Southeast Asia. And there's no need to be, obviously. I think the American view of startups and approaches. And I think one interesting challenge has been the fact that to some extent, you know, Southeast Asia's ecosystem, like many other technology ecosystems around the world, has really taken their cue from America, which is right because America is where venture capital was built as an idea. So much technology has been built there. I think there's a very growing understanding that similar to China and similar to India, Southeast Asia tech ecosystem is maturing and growing into its own right. There's this interesting trend where 
I think someone like Jason Calican is, is a great reflection of how American ecosystem thinks. And also actually is a good reflection of the American leaning trend of technology thinking around the world. Because people in China or India would listen to Jason Calacanis and as a result be inspired by the way he thinks and talks. For me, that was also a big inspiration of why I eventually launched my own podcast was because I was getting to chat with a bunch of friends and acquaintances that were really about Southeast Asia. And I remember looking up Southeast Asia tech podcasts several years ago and realizing that they were, they were talking about it in a very superficial way. And so I thought that was a great opportunity to build up uh, what will eventually become the Brave podcast and getting to talk in a human and humane way about what technology is. So just before we jump into Brave, we haven't set up what exactly you do amongst you. So you are head of strategic projects. What does that mean? What does your day look like? I'm also a chief of staff as well. I think what that means is that I think there are three big aspects about it. I think the first aspect, of course, is just like every other VC is deal flow, which is a nice way of saying of helping founders, selecting founders in terms of prioritization, as well as choosing which founders to back with capital to grow to the next stage and doing that on an individual basis, but also on a repeated basis, on a day in, day out basis. means that, for example, today I met with six founders today, actually, you range from helping them think through their business in a very positive way because they're growing very well and thinking about how to hire and how to support that all the way to the other end where the business is really struggling and they're trying to decide what they personally should do, whether they should close the business or sell the business, buy out the business. So there's a very wide range if you think about it, about what that daily flow is. And I think that really takes on, I think what I call like the coach and the problem solver aspect of it, which is at some level, you're always solving problems, right? Growth problems and technology and so forth. But being able to do that in a way that's very human can be difficult at scale. I think the second aspect is what I call the structural approach, which means that beyond me doing as a human, how am I re-engineering and upgrading our company's ability to source, screen, prioritize, and learn from the way that we are making investments. And that deal engine is something that I'm working on because it not only helps me by supporting me, but also helps the rest of the entire company. The majority of teammates are also out there day in, day out representing mm -hmm. the company. And the third, of course, is I'd say ad hoc projects, but they are really key to the company that are cross-functional, but important to the organization for it to be spearheaded. And in that capacity, I probably act most as a pure consultant slash coordinator role to help shepherd these projects from point A to point B. And all of those three roles, honestly, is just one person on the team that's there. So Tripod Leg 1 is find great companies. Tripod Level 2 is help the company as a whole find great companies. And the third is very much like help the company be a better company, right? So ways that I think about it. Do you invest in early stage, primarily a Series A, and you spend a lot of time with founders. So what are you looking for? What kind of founder has stood up for you? From my perspective is that founders are really the hero of the company. And the truth is having a founder who's able to build and keep building is the prerequisite. Because if you come up to me and you have an idea, you got my attention, but you probably will not have my support, right? It'd be hard to get the support of any VC because all you have is an idea that's verbal, but you have not done the work of making something out of nothing. So 
Yeah, being able to build something uh, out of nothing is key, and being able to snowball that into more growth is really, I think, the crux of what every VC is really looking for on level. I think the second part is just at some level would be the belief that you're solving a huge problem, right? And being a VC kind of like that scratch my itch, going back to the first question you asked me about making a huge impact, right? I think in VC, you know, you're looking for people who are trying to impact lots of lives at a large scale. There's no such thing as a small VC backed startup. They're small now, but their vision is large. And so I think it does tie nicely where at VC, the equivalent of it would be like sculpting elite athletes, right? Into <laughs> it, I want to change the world at scale and that the back deeply, both not just with capital, but also with time, attention, problem solving, coaching, mentorship. I think the challenging part is that everybody wants to play soccer, but not everybody is going to play soccer in the English Premier League. And within the English Premier League, the truth is that many clubs that are bad, average, good and great the great clubs are looking for the best soccer players and so there's this interesting matching or assortment game and i think it causes a lot of that dichotomy which feels challenging and i think me having now been on both sides of the table finds it a little bit easier to both articulate also be sympathetic i think on both sides of the table and you mentioned the brave podcast earlier i wonder because you have spoken to so many people by now what is your general feel on where the Southeast Asian tech scene is right, right now? Southeast Asian tech ecosystem is composed of two stories. I think the first story is about Southeast Asia as a market. And then the second part is Southeast Asia as a pool of you know, entrepreneurs and capital and ecosystem. I think the former is straightforward in the sense that Southeast Asia has... On average, across the region, a lower GDP per capita than China, but more. And so there's an interesting dynamic where servicing the requirements and needs from a technology perspective means that more people in Indonesia or Singapore or Thailand or Vietnam or Malaysia or the Philippines get to get some access more to things they couldn't get before, right? Either through more availability of e-commerce goods they could buy all the way to making it easier to travel from place to place to this information availability on ways to be a better parent. Those are things that technology has allowed to happen because there's more internet, but there's more GDP per capita over time. And so there's that pent up consumer demand slash adoption of technology that Southeast Asia has to not just improve the quality of life, but also leapfrog anyways, the old ways of thinking customs. I think the other side of it is really about the entrepreneurship ecosystem. So I think the increasing risk appetite of founders, the fact that talent is more and more competent or fluent about what startups look like or what the norms are, the transparency about who's a good VC versus other approaches to capital. You know, I think the maturity of the Southeast Asia ecosystem is really deepening. And what that means is that 20 years ago, you know, I think the same growth story about Southeast Asia as a market was still true 20 years ago. But... 20 years ago, most of that requirement for new ways of thinking, new approaches, it was really being serviced by multinational corporations and expatriates who are really solving it because they had that risk appetite, uh, because they had that extension capability. But I think what's really happened over the past 20 years from the tech system is that all those requirements are actually increasingly and often better served, I think, by domestic and regional and local entrepreneurs working hand-in-hand with local ecosystem partners like venture capital or jewels or local service providers to service that local need, right? 
Do you feel like you found your why? Broadly, yes. I think one thing I realized is that having written multiple mission statements over the years, the why is really a moving target, you know, and it's not a static thing that you have. It's not something you set up as a kid. It's not, you know, the why for me now, you know, I think that's amazing is at one level, I love science fiction. I love reading science fiction. I could talk to you about science fiction for a day, <laughs> talk your ear off. And I think technology is amazing because you're making the opportunity to make all the science fiction become reality. And so you get to think about that time scale, but also you get to see about how you're going to be helping people over time. I think that being a VC and being a founder has allowed me to work with people because brave people who are willing to build something amazing and build something thoughtful and to rally people. It's not just inspiring to the people around them, but it's inspiring to me for me to hang out with them. And I feel better for hanging out with them. And then thirdly, I think is that my why is also being back in Southeast Asia, right? Because when I was in America building a startup from pre-seed or the seed to Series A and selling it, I mean, I was helping America, but I was always a bit disconnected because I felt like I wasn't really helping. And to be able to do this in Southeast Asia where I feel like it's home makes it much better. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I had opportunity to visit Pompeii over the past year. And one thing I realized was that town 2000 years ago, I don't know any of the names, right? So I think legacy is a very temporal thing. The truth is in 2000 years, the truth is nobody's going to know what my legacy is. And so I think for me, the way I try to define legacy is more like, I hope that I live life in a way that was true to myself as much as possible so that I was growing me the best at that time and that the people around me felt that too, right? And that they too feel like they got a chance to see me as who I was and who I am. And I always tell people, I was like, you know, when I have a funeral, no one's going to recite my achievements. I think people are just going to share about how you made them feel, right? The Maya Angelou quote. Exactly, right? And I think for me, I hope that at that funeral, I think everybody had a good time. That we are, you know, wearing tie-dye shirts and you know, multicolored balloons and playing some dance music and cracking some jokes, maybe some dark humor along the way say since it's a funeral. But I really hope that when I pass, my legacy is just that people were thankful that I existed for this very temporal period of time. And I, honestly, that's the best I can hope for from my perspective. And that was the end of episode 97. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismywide.com forward slash 97. And stay tuned for next Sunday because we'll be meeting a guest who is deep in the Web3 fashion space. She has worked in fashion publications for a while. As the American fashion director of Incel, Coniness, and as a style editor at Paper City, and is now running her own startup focusing on digitals. Digital goods that are paired with physical fine jewelry. If you're interested in learning more about the traditional versus the web through fashion world, then this is certainly an episode to tune into. So do stick around and see you next Sunday.